Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this podcast I speak to politicians and opinion formers to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. Having taken a bit of a break, this summer's leadership election inspired me to record some special episodes. And over the summer, I got to know David Davis MP, who I had not met before. He is such a well-known figure within the Conservative Party and a fascinating character, so I'm so pleased he agreed to come on. We talk about his interesting background, raised by a communist grandfather and growing up in what he described as a slum. His heated moments with Margaret Thatcher and what both leadership contenders could learn from her as well as President Lincoln when forming the next government. This episode is kindly supported by WaterAid, a charity that is leading the way in bringing life-saving clean water, decent sanitation and good hygiene to everyone everywhere. Across the globe, one in ten people don't have access to water in or close to their homes. One in five does not have access to a decent toilet. And without these basics, people can't thrive. They can't build any resilience, girls can't go to school, and livelihoods are lost, trapping families in a cycle of poverty and disease. They are an important line of defence to fight drug-resistant viruses and bacteria, making the world safer and making the UK a safer place for it. But that defence is under pressure, as our climate is increasingly impacting people's access to clean water and sanitation. The heat waves and floods in Pakistan are the latest example of just that. If this disaster has shown us anything, it's that climate change is making the struggle even harder for people living on the front line of the climate crisis. That's why WaterAid urges the next Prime Minister to address the climate and global health crises that we are facing. It is vital that the new PM puts in place a cross-departmental strategy on global water security, acknowledging that water security is as vital as energy or food in the UK and abroad. Water aids our climate fight campaign calls on the PM to invest at least a third of the UK's climate budget in local adaptation projects. This includes bringing water, sanitation and hygiene to people who need them. As the UK has a long history of supporting people across the globe, it is not a big ask. David Davis, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? My pleasure. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much. It means a lot. You know, this is also the first episode that I've done in person. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, because it started in lockdown, so it it was all via Zoom. But um, as you put it, you like to look your interviewer in the eye. That's exactly right. (laughs) And now we can, so uh, quite right too. We didn't know each other um, really until this summer mm-hmm. where we met during Penny Morden's leadership campaign. And obviously I knew lots about you by reputation, mm-hmm. reading things in the news, but I hadn't really ever met you. And, um, and I, w- I wandered in off the street, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always respected you hugely because you're such, you know, you are a Tory grandee, I would say. But I really enjoyed getting to know you and I discovered many things about you that I didn't realise, which we'll, we'll touch, in, touch on today. So, um, so, yeah, again, thank you so much for, com- for coming on. To start off, I'll, I'll kick off with one of my three uh, key questions, which is, in this instance, really, you know, the place. 
what place or places have impacted your life and and thinking David well we're all made in our childhood I guess and I have three sets of places really which uh, created me I mean the first was when I was a tiny child up to about six years old or thereabouts um, I was the son of a single mum back in the late 40s, 50s, when it was terrible stigma, you know, and so on. So I didn't live with her. I lived with my grandparents. And we lived in a prefab, uh, which is a little asbestos box. Now, this begins to sound straight away like a sort of an extract from Monty Python, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a great place. I mean, uh, people think, oh, God, it must be terrible. Actually, they were terribly well-designed things. They had central heating of a sort. Um, when, when in, in an era when nobody had central heating. Um, uh, it was uh, nice and cosy. Uh, it was emotionally very warm. And it was right under, in the lee of the what, they, what we used to call the bar walls, the medieval walls of York. So I used to sort of play in the garden, and the garden ended at the walls. So other kids had bouncy castles. I had a real castle <laughs> to play on. So that was the sort of beginning. You know, and I, th th that, in the way of memories, is, is sort of full of golden days of sunshine and so on. So it's a sort of very fond memory. We then went from there to somewhere which could mm, uh, could simply be described as a slum. Um, two up, two down, uh, no bathroom, outdoor loo, scullery, not kitchen. Uh, we basically lived in one room. Um, no, ga uh, no electricity, just gaslight. Mm. Uh, and so on and that was awful uh, how old were you I was sense? between six and nine or six right. and ten something like that mm. um, down it's just 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 over the river from here it's all been bulldozed decades ago but replaced by a council state that looked like it was built in East Germany um, <laughs> but the uh, the uh, that was a, an unpleasant time and I went from as it were living with my grandparents to living with my mother and and that would be my stepfather, her new husband. Um, and uh, that was a sort of tough time for all sorts of reasons, a tough environment. You know, when you change school at that age, if you don't change at the end of term, or uh, mm. it's, it's, you know, you're, you're an outsider. Um, uh, and in those days, I couldn't read. I was seven before I could read. Um, uh, I was, if you like, educationally way behind the curve. Uh, and, it was, and it was a tough and actually quite violent environment. So, so that was then. And then we went, and uh, again, people may be surprised, quite a big step up in the world. We went to a council estate. <laughs> council estate that people talk about uh, in, my, in my history is actually the nice time. <laughs> mm. Because it, well, it, did have, it did have sort of an indoor bathroom and, and a proper kitchen and a living room and, and uh, you know, my own room to, to, to sleep in, things like that. Um, and although people talk about the council state so it's so it terribly, terribly impoverished and so on, it didn't feel like that. Mm. You know, you only know what you know. You don't, you don't grow up with an idea that you might have grown up in a stately home or you might have grown up in yeah. a posh house in Hampstead uh, or whatever. You just it's all relative. You, yeah, it's that, yeah. It's all, and, and this was just relative to what went before. Yeah. And since what went before was a slum, it actually felt quite good. Um, and it was quite a model council estate too, in the sense it was well made, well designed, as many of them were in those days. Um, and 
and you know it was a it was a nice environment in southwest london so so those are the sort of three early parts of my life and the irony as i say is that what people always talk about oh you know son of a single mum in a council estate actually that bit was quite nice mm. interesting so how do you feel that has shaped you as a politician and uh, you know through your for your many years here in in parliament how would you just how how do you think reflecting well, on that it's You know, place is less important than time in this respect Um, because, uh, take the time of the council estate, Um, very shortly after that I got into grammar school, passed by 11 plus and got into grammar school, Mm. you know, all care of a couple of teachers who, you know, one of whom taught me uh, to read in one term. I went from bottom of class to top of class in a single term because the teacher just literally took me and made me pull myself up by my bootstrap, just decided... This this child is intelligent. There's no reason he can't read. You know, it was just the disruption in life that had stopped it. Yeah. You know? um, and another teacher who basically taught me maths. You know, and the, those two teachers, without them, I'd be you know working a lathe in a in a factory or whatever. Or actually, I'd probably be retired on a state pension by now. But the um, so that that but the environment was important. The environment of the time was the sixties. Uh, now, this may not mean much to people of your generation, but it was a transformative decade. You know, you come out of the war, everything had been rather conformist in the 50s, national services still existed, rationing had still been in place, people still carried ID cards. Well, that was the 50s. Then all of a sudden, the 60s, you've got the Beatles and the Rolling Stones mm. and, the, and, all, and all of that. Working class culture gone mad. You know, these are working class, well, the Rolling Stones are not, the Jag was middle class, but but mostly it was working class culture. You had uh, Michael Caine as a as as a sort of film star, you know, working class lad. You had David Bailey as the great photographer. The some yeah. of the great models today were from working class. Suddenly, opportunity was bursting out all over the place, and I was going to a grammar school. You know, one uh, yeah, now one in five kids went to grammar schools in those days. Um, very large number. We forget that. You know, we did away with this. One of the worst things Margaret Thatcher ever did was do away with a lot of them. But, they, but we did away with this. And with it, a lot of opportunities vanished for a very long time. It's sort of recovering now by, by a sort of thousand different initiatives that brought it back. But in my day, when I was a teenager, um, suddenly all, all the world was open. You know, all the opportunities were there. I was going to a good school, and it was a good school. And uh, if you, the other place, if you like, was that school. It was a place called Beck Grammar School. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was probably in the top ten in the country. So you know, oh, yeah. a chance from somebody <clears throat> in my background having all those chances. And as I say, the atmosphere was one of you know we were we were taking on the world. London was the global centre of fashion. London was a global centre of pop music. They talk about the British invasion in America of all the British pop bands going over there. You know, we were important in culture. The King's Road and Carnaby Street were all sort of worldwide names that everybody knew about, yeah. you know? Um, and so, although it didn't impinge directly on my daily life, that was, the, that was the atmosphere, that was the environment. Everything was changing, everything was possible. Um, uh, John Kennedy was the President of the United yeah, States, yeah. You, know, uh, you know, very grand people. So then, when did you discover your political orientation, or in, you know, in your case, that you were a Conservative? Well, it changed, because my grandfather, um, uh, who brought me up in the first instance of communist, he went to prison for it. Um, 
I went to prison for nominally starting a riot, even though he did try to stop it. Um, uh, the, uh, so I started off on the left, if you like, but it wasn't really an ideological decision so much as a social one. You know, rebellion was in the air, you know, uh, and I'm, I've always been a natural in that direction anyway. I always want to rebel against whatever there is there. Uh, and so rebellion was in the air throughout the, throughout that era. And, and until I got to university, if you'd asked me uh, where would I naturally vote, it would have been Labour, you know. Um, again, to put, put the context, you know, probably one of the greatest Home Secretaries since the Second World War was Roy Jenkin. Now, why Roy Jenkin? Um, because I didn't like him as a man. I, I, I thought personally he wasn't very nice, but, but he, he brought in homosexual law reform. He ended censorship of the theatre. Uh, and a whole series of liberal changes, small L liberal changes, where we were, we were coming into the modern world, if you like, from the rather buttoned up into mm. war and immediate post-war environment. Um, and all those things, you know, and, and in those days, I mean, in some ways the phrases don't change. Harold Wilson talked about the white teeth of the, of the technological revolution. You know, this is in the 60s, this is 50 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was the modern way, you know, so that's where I was started. And it wasn't until I got to university and I went to Warwick and I made a for a variety of reasons, I won't, won't bother you with. I made a real mess of my A-levels. Um, and I ended up literally sleeping in Green Park the night before my physics A-level. Wow. <laughs> I left home. Um, Gosh. Uh, I'm simplifying a very complicated yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, But the, but the, um, uh, the, 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 the effect was, instead of going to Oxbridge, which was what the, the grammar school was trying to point me towards, I went to Warwick. Um, and that was tremendous from all sorts of points of view. First, it was a brand new university. It, was a, it wasn't just red brick, it was a white tile. You know, it was completely new. It had only been there for about three or four years. It already had the best maths faculty in Europe, probably in the world. Top five professors in maths there. Um, my subject wasn't maths, but it was related to maths. It was molecular science and physics and, and maths were an important part of it. Um, and it was new. I met the love of my life. I met my wife there. Mm. Um, you know, sort of bowled over at first sight. She didn't. She wasn't so impressed with me. It took her three years to change her mind. Um, and you do strike me as a very persistent. Uh, yeah, I never give up. I never give up. <laughs> Personal life and professional life. She clearly. kept. She kept moving. She kept moving away from me in lectures because I kept telling jokes and distracting her from taking notes. Um, uh, I sort of discovered. I discovered proper politics there in a way. Uh, it was again the 60s time of the Sorbonne riots. It was uh, the, the, the two great centres of left-wing rebellion in in Britain at the time. One was the LSE and the other one was Warwick where there was a huge very famous sit-in um, which I was a part of and but I sort of very quickly came to the view that you know actually I'm a believer in freedom. I'd already served as a reservist uh, and my job had been anti-Soviet in those days, um, so I had strong views on the Soviet Union, which were not not friendly. Um, and I was beginning to sort of land in my political place, uh, and I became chairman of the Warwick Conservative Association. I then went on to become chairman of the national chairman of the Federation of Conservative Students. Doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I, I, I. Uh, but it was about fifteen thousand members. 
and um, uh, so I got to know Margaret Thatcher as Education Secretary, yeah. right? Uh, I had my first conflict with her right back then. <laughs> and, oh yeah, we always fought. And, um, uh, uh, and that got me into, in those days, everybody sort of expected the chairman of FCS, as it was called, uh, to become an MP. Yeah. Uh, nearly every, in fact, all except one chairman of FCS up until about three or four years before me, or five years before me, ended up in cabinet. The only the, the one that did Gosh. was a man called Sir John Donaldson, who was the head of the National Industrial Relations Court. He was a senior judge, so he couldn't well, be. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it was just it was the hot house. Wow, interesting. Um, and and I took it over and changed it because it it, it was basically an Oxbridge style debating society. Mm. And now we were the politics of the street, you know, sit ins. Uh, demonstrations, riots, even, you know, that's what would student politics was like, you know, yeah. very, very f fierce and, uh, and contentious. And I wanted to be able to deal with that very heavily funded left-wing propaganda in all the universities yeah. and take them on head on. You know, if, if, you, if, you, if you think the modern arguments overwoke and then multiply them by 10, that's what it was at the time, you know. <laughs> So clearly, from from a very young age, through that role, I suppose, and, and other other elements of your life, you got exposed to many, well, at least interesting, but also very senior people. Hmm. Um, who um, would you say, or which people would you say has has really impacted your politics? Well, the first was my grandfather, who brought me up. Now, just to give a, a sort of quick cameo he grew up in North Shields pretty much the grottiest place in the country he had polio so in a time when manual work was the common lot of most men and he uh, and he grew up in the 20s and 30s during the Great Depression so every single chip was stacked against him right so you'd think he'd be a have a miserable life uh, anything but he was a charismatic formidable speaker, um, great organiser, great personality, even the Tories, and he was a communist, even the Tories in, uh, and the Tory newspaper in North Shields talked highly of him, right? Um, he was one of the leaders of a thing called the National Unemployed um, Workers Movement, which George Orwell talked about in The Road to Wigan Pier with great admiration. Um, and he led this demonstration in the 30s, 30 anyway, the early 30s, um, uh, which ended up with him going to prison. Mm. Um, the judge gave him the option of not going to prison if he agreed to be bound over and not make any inflammatory speeches for six months. And he said, well, no, I'm not going to make a promise I can't keep. So he said, right, oh, six months in prison instead. So yeah. that was the sort of nature of the man. He had chained yeah. himself to the railings, I am told, uh, uh, or so was said as obituary, uh, outside Downing Street after one unemployed workers march and so on so so all sort you know that was him and so what was the takeaway from that what what do you what did you take away and and as we said you're persistent uh you also don't shy away from from you know vocalizing your opinions however strong or uh, it's uncomfortable it, it, some people might, it, it, might well, it's it. it's it's hard to know truth be told because he was the first formative influence you know when i was four yeah. years old he would talk to me as an adult. Yeah. 
Mm. And he'd talk about what was on the radio. You know, we didn't have internet then. We didn't have all of that. We, yeah. we didn't even have television. You know, we didn't have screens. You had the, the newspapers and what was on the radio. And he would talk about those things as to an adult. He'd also, and he had a wonderful memory. And he'd, and he'd cite things from, you know, like the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam or, you know, some other thing. You know. mm. um, and uh, so he sort of taught me the importance of intellect and the importance of ideas, I think. I, now, I am rationalising like mad. I'm sure he did a lot more to, to mould my character. Yeah, but that's of course. What, that's yeah. So, so that's, that's the sort of starter, you know. Um, and it meant... What he, what he basically made me was uncomfortable. He made me personally uncomfortable, i.e. uncomfortable for other people. Um, he, you know, I always went back... Because I often disagreed with him. I, I, I often sort of go back to first principles. I say, why does this matter? Who does it affect? Who have we forgotten? It's a great thing in politics. Always a good question. Yeah. Who have we forgotten? Mm. You sit in the chamber and you talk about, I don't know, sending people to Rwanda. Who have we forgotten? You know, what's 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 going to happen that we've forgotten about? You know, um, uh, or we talk about some other thing. You know, you know the counterterrorism law. Who who's who are we going to get wrong? You know, who's going to get who's going to suffer because we get this bit wrong? That that sort of um, ab initio method of argument was hammered into me really from day one um so he was important thatcher was important thatcher in those days margaret thatcher milk snatcher the most unpopular politician in britain you know um and she was interesting because she was fierce but nervous mm. um my, my first conflict with her was was we were, I'd taken a, a load of postgraduate students to talk to her about the grant system. We had grants in those days, not loans. And one of them was talking about how we should make it legally enforceable that parents had to pay their contribution. A lot of them didn't. Mine didn't. I didn't get a grant. Um, and she hated this. She absolutely hated it. I actually introducing the law into the family. She quite rightly was completely antagonistic. And she was boring into this lad. And I could see the tears forming in his eyes. He was, you know, he was basically crumbling. You know. <laughs> and um, and I, I leaned over and I said, Secretary of State, uh, all these people have come for continually altruistic motives to try and help you with your thinking on grants. Um, and uh, they put a lot of work in for no gain to themselves, so I'm afraid it's incumbent on you to be polite to them. Mm. And if you're not, we can end this meeting right now. And she turned and said, the first time I was on the receiving end of that laser stare, and I thought, oh, Jesus, what do I say? Do you know? And I sort of sat there, and it felt like hours, but it was probably only about four or five seconds. And they said, right, next subject. And, and was that, that the was, first of many? That such was the stairs. first of many. And, and what <laughs> I never knew until very, very much later on was she liked people who argued with her. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. one of her odd characteristics, but actually quite informative for her, you know? Yeah. Um, and so she was incredibly good on detail. Many, many years later, when, he, um, when I was take, going to see her and talk about you know, a policy change I wanted to get through. Uh, which I won with eventually, but but you had to go through this process, go to the Prime Minister and talk to her. And I asked Ian Gow to give me some advice. He'd been her PBS and just before he just before he was killed by the IRA, and and, and um, he said, "My boy," he said, "you must know your case. He said you must know the footnotes to your case, and you must know the footnotes to the footnotes to your case because if you don't, she'll find the gap 
there'd be a pair of tyre tracks across you and she'd be gone. Yeah. And you're dead right. And, and that's how she tested people. It's one of the reasons the right was used to complain when she was Prime Minister that there were too many left-wingers in her cabinet, right? I think the reason for that was because as junior minister, she'd have them in, she'd put them through this grinding process, and the ones who stood up to her got promoted. Yeah. And the yeah. ones who stood up to her tended to be the left-wingers. The right-wingers yeah. were in awe of her, you yeah. see. So uh, where, where are we, if you compare that yeah. to politics of the last, I don't know, six years or you know, mm-hmm. however long you want, some more recent times, for, as, a, as, a, you know, as an outsider, how, it, 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 I would assume that has changed. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that the yeah. understatement of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> of a but decade? You, you know, I, I, I'm always pulling myself up because, because you know, you, you, you kindly describe me as a grandee. Old would be a better word. The older you are, the more the risk is that you look back on halcyon days and say nothing's quite as good as it was then. Well, of course, that's rubbish because we don't have anything like the poverty levels we had when I was young. Yeah. You know, I mean, people are poor today, but they aren't quite in the circumstance with, you know, absolute, you know, we talk about people not being able to heat their homes yeah. this winter. People couldn't heat their homes at all, large numbers of them back in the 60s and so on. So, so, so things are better in many, many ways. But politics is different in a variety of ways. Firstly, the type of people it, it attracts are different. Um, and it's not really beneficially better uh, in that sense. Um, uh, when I first came into House of Commons, the two, my two predecessors were both double-decorated uh, military veterans. They both run regiments, both have got MCs and DSOs, uh, one out of Victoria decoration, but DSO or equivalent. Um, they had both fought in the war for years. Uh, they've obviously been brave, obviously uh, duty was a big part of their life and so on. They weren't, they weren't, not, neither of them made cabinet. In fact, um, only one of them even got to junior minister level, you know. But they were great people in their own way. Yeah. You don't see any of that now, frankly. You don't see people with that history of duty. You know, you hear people talk about, oh, I served in Afghanistan or I served in Iraq or whatever. But they're very, very compressed, short careers. It's not the same. Uh, experience of living through a world war for a start. It's not their fault, but it's it's just different. Um, and that, that had a sifting effect. Um, also, we were going through global level changes, which we may again be doing in the next decade, right? Um, uh, in that for most of the 50s and 60s and the 70s, the conventional view amongst the British establishment was their job was to manage decline. You know, we were withdrawing from empire. Uh, you know, we were losing our place in the world. Uh, we were sliding down the, the economic league tables, etc., etc. And their job was to manage that and make that comfortable. Then along comes Thatcher. And says, no, it isn't. Our job is to reverse that decline, right? I remember that vividly in 75, writing a piece of the Telegraph about it. Um, now, uh, so there was a huge project, and it's very, very hard to... To understand from here um, what that was like. She had a cabinet which was formidable by any standards. 
you know, it wasn't just her. You got Whitelaw, you got Lawson, you got Howe, you got mm. Peter Walker on the left, but he's still important. You know, every single member of that cabinet would be a standout today. Every single one. Yeah. Um, uh, and so now that was just an accident of fate or accident of history. That's different. And they, and they all had this common project, which they spent a decade changing our standing in the world. And the result of that was the rest of the world copied us. Things like privatisation, you know, people get very upset about privatisation, but it was broadly a big success. Broadly, it's had its mistakes, no doubt about it. And it's not appropriate in every time. And we haven't controlled it well in the energy companies, for example. Um, but the but nevertheless, broadly, huge transformation, transformation of attitudes, dealing with Gorbachev. Gorbachev died this week. Yeah. You know, she was one of the material influences in his life. You know, so all of that has had changed. so that so in this in this last leadership contest, we're just concluding. The you know everybody's trying to compare themselves to Thatcher. None of them were like Thatcher. Nobody, even my favourites, were not like Thatcher. Nothing yeah. like. Yeah. Thatcher was strategically incredibly bold, tactically incredibly cautious, almost the reverse yeah. of, the, of, of the current generation. You know, she took everything, sort of little grandmother's footsteps, and suddenly, bang, she's, she's in a different country. And nobody's noticed. So, so the, those big, so the, psycho, the circumstances, the social background, the people in the House of Commons, and there's one other thing which is a really deleterious change. Um, and it is this. Because of the effect of social media and the multiplicity of specialised platforms and specialised media routes, um, the world today is almost in a set of competing echo chambers. Even in the sort of fierce arguments in my youth, in student politics and in the early Thatcher politics and so on, there was a middle ground. You know, you could safely occupy the middle ground. It was yeah. the safest place to be sometimes. You could safely occupy the middle ground. Today, the middle ground is often the place where you get attacked by both groups. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at, the, look at all the woke yeah. stuff. I'm not a great fan or greatly interested in woke arguments, frankly. And I don't think it's a great way to, for political parties to take their way. I think Starmer's right to stay out of it, you know. Um, but the um, because seventy percent of the public don't care about it. I mean, it's but, higher, eh? <laughs> higher, I think. Yeah, <laughs> probably more. But yeah. the you know, but you've got these two echo chambers, and they won't talk to each other. Yeah. You've got the same with Brexit. I mean, I really saw this for the first time in stark, vivid detail when I was Brexit secretary, and I went to Brussels, and nothing you said there could have impact because they just rejected you before you arrived, right? Mm -hmm. And you get back here and you get the Brexit argument and they're the same the other way around, you know. So you've got two groups of people and trying to bridge them was a nightmare, you know. Yeah. Um, indeed, that's really in many ways what did for Theresa May. You know, she was sort of in one echo chamber and she couldn't quite make the transition. So, and that, that's... And you uh, mentioned social media. Yeah, social media has made that much, much worse, you yeah. know. Um, uh, I, might, I, have, I have a Twitter account and uh, yeah, I got 190,000 followers, something like that. Um, and I broadcast it. I barely read it. I mean, I read. That's a high number. Yeah, and I barely read Grandy. it. Grandy. You know, I don't. You know, <laughs> well, probably because I sort of broadcast things I'm interested in, yeah, yeah. and they happen to have an impact. I mean, one of my. See, I'm not grandy. I mean, this this is the this is the interesting thing here. Um, 
I have the advantage of about 20 years of becoming progressively better known. Right? Mm. Typically on subjects that started out outside the mainstream. Mm. All the civil liberty stuff. All the torture stuff. Some of my economics. You know, I'm a quirky. People think of me as a Thatcherite, but they don't really. You know, I mean, I've got Robert Pesson's always asked me to go on his programme. Not because he wants a Thatcherite, but he wants somebody who's going to come at it to go back to my grandfather's approach from a, a base, uh, a core principles approach and dissect every yeah. problem, right? Now, the, it was never intended this way. Um, uh, but yeah, it started that, that almost a day I got into Parliament when I picked a fight with Thatcher over uh, taking away free eyesight tests and free, well, free eyesight tests um, for reasons that it would make people go blind for glaucoma. But, but I've been, that little bit of being slightly outside the establishment, not, 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 not on the opposite camp, but slightly outside, has made I've, been, I've become very well known. And so the result of that is, if you're a politician, that's leverage. Yeah, you know, if you can command an article in the newspaper, if you—I mean, I remember a few years ago, people saying, "You know, you've got an article in the Times and the Telegraph today. How did you do that?" Oh, well, we just had two different subjects that are interesting on two different on, you know, yeah. uh, on the same day, um, and that is very valuable to me, um, and it's one of the reasons I don't care about being inside or outside government because actually outside government sometimes are more powerful than inside. Yeah, um, so I forgot how we so, started, started well, out this argument. But the well, you talked about how um, politics today is attracting different people yeah, than, than yeah, it used to, and yeah. we also talked about how Thatcher sort of welcomed uh, challenge. You yeah. know, obviously behind closed doors, I suspect part of social media nowadays, a lot of his stuff gets aired, dirty laundry gets aired mm. publicly, which I, must be a huge headache and. And I think a, a real serious problem for for governing. Yeah, sometimes it's untrue dirty laundry. As well, well, a lot of it is yeah, yeah. very untrue, yeah. as uh, yeah, as we obviously also experienced with Penny's campaign. But um, one of the things that sort of the narrative that took hold around Boris Johnson was that he he rewarded sort of almost blind uh, loyalty, um, and uh, and I just wonder, like you know, looking at, and I I, I don't know, obviously. That's true or not, but that, that's definitely the narrative that that um, took took hold, rather than necessarily talent or. Uh, yeah, I think it broadly is true. I mean, I think it broadly is true. I mean, and it was it was. I mean, I voted for Boris. Not it wasn't my first choice uh, in, in that leadership election. Although in the previous one where he didn't run, he was my first choice. Oddly, mm. um, uh, so I voted for him, and I have I have a fondness for him. Although it's a, I, I would describe it as an open-eyed fondness. I can see the warts as well um, and the re- one of the reasons I voted for him was that when he was the mayor of London he promoted really talented people all around him uh, Kit Malthouse is here now in, in the house um, um, Eddie Lister um, uh, and so on and so on yeah, people who, who was it? Simon oh who, who died who, who was that, the head of uh, brilliant head of, of uh, Westminster. Yeah, people who'd run council, who knew their way around the territory, and did a fantastic job. And as a result, he was a very good mayor of London. Mm. And and I thought he was going to do the same when he came into yeah. into into being prime minister. 
but he didn't. He, he, he and the, and the test of this was he did. He offered uh, Hunt a who after all came uh, came second to him. He's a, he's a poor second, but nevertheless he came second. He offered him a demotion, you know, which meant he was he wasn't in cabinet, and the cabinet around him were largely loyalists, um, and that and it, and. He was able to do that because he had a big majority. Right? Yeah. Um, so what? And and but that was a huge weakness. And I think yeah. at the end of the day, it's probably what finished him. Because if he'd had yeah. people around him who could have stood up to him and said, "Boris, you shouldn't be doing this," or, or "Boris, you should go to the house and tell them the whole truth now," yeah. you know, those sorts of conversations he didn't have because the people around him were all. Um, very socially or intellectually subordinate to him, one way or another. So, as, as you say... And he we're, picked we're, that, he chose that. Yeah, yeah no, I would agree with that analysis. I mean, so, as we are concluding this leadership contest, what, you say, you think it might have been fatal for Boris Johnson. What are you, you know, what are you, well, you sort of answered, I suppose, but like, what, what is your message to both candidates as to when they, you know, there's a lot of speculation around who's going to be in the cabinet, and actually, I find a lot of it seems to be loyalists again, sort yeah. of a bit like repeat of Boris, yeah. which really surprises me, especially as you say, Boris, Jeremy Hunt came, you know, poor second. This was a very tight race amongst MPs, you know, yeah. even the person, Penny, who came third at 29% yeah. of the MPs' votes. So, surely it can't be a repeat of Boris, would be my. Well, if it, is, if it is, if it is, it but will be a mistake. You... If it yeah. is, it will be a mistake. Um, the uh, and of course, it's tempting, you know, when you've had a loyal band of supporters around you and they've got you from nowhere near favourite to favourite, you know, um, uh, uh, which is the case with with Liz Truss. And it's tempting for Rishi, who've had a lot of people with him, I think, for quite a long time, encouraging him to run and so on. Um, I think in, in each of those cases you can see temptations. Um, and that temptation is exacerbated by the size of the majority. Right? The, um, because it's quite hard for rebellion to work against. That, that's one that people forget. What do big majorities do? It's not a question of beating Labour, it's a question of dealing with your own side. Mm. The dynamic of a majority of 25 is completely different to the dynamic of a majority of 80. If I, if I want to have a row with the government over something, I don't expect to win the vote in Parliament. I have to win it somewhere else. Yeah? Um, and so they, they, can, they can casually do what they want at one level. But neither of the current candidates ever got to the point of having a majority of MPs. Right? Um, I think now Liz has got 130 something have come out for her. That means 200 plus have not, you know. Um, and there is a suggestion that she she uh, wants to have a sort of well, there's been stories that she wants to have a very loyalist um, cabinet. I think that would be a mistake. The there was a great book which I recommend to your listeners called Team of Rivals. Yes, I read that recently. Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln was the outsider. He was the, the, the hick from the backcountry, you know, backcountry lawyer. 
and he was up against great, uh, great debaters and rhetoricians and politicians, statesmen of the day. He brought them all into his cabinet. Yeah. And, there is, and he kept them, basically. And the result was he had a high-quality cabinet yeah. uh, right through the Civil War, which, of course, you know, he needed... Who became yeah. really loyal to him. Yes, that's right. Because they got that's to right. know him and... That's right. Just as, I mean, yeah. Thatcher, uh, the person who was expected to succeed Heath was Whitelaw. Mm. And Whitelaw became Thatcher's right-hand man. Um, uh, with that wonderful quote from Penny about all that, you know, and and the uh, that's that's the way of true leadership, that's the way of real leadership. But to do that, you've got to be very confident, you know. Um, and one of the reasons I supported Rishi was I suspected, although there would be a tendency to loyalty, loyalism uh, amongst his group, I thought you know he had the intellectual capacity to be able to pull people on board. Liz, I don't know. You know, I just don't know. Um, but to whichever one wins, my strong advice would be to have the most diverse and the tallest poppy cabinet you could get away with. You know, the smartest people, no matter how difficult they are. And so long as you are forceful about ensuring that the fierce debate is inside cabinet, and then once you've agreed in cabinet, everybody abides by it, um, then that will work brilliantly. Yeah. But it has to, you know, th those rules have to apply. Yeah, definitely. Now, as we're drawing to a close, I just have some slightly more snappier, or sh not snap slightly more shorter questions. But, um, you know, looking back at your, uh, your time, especially as, as government minister, cabinet minister, what is one of the more, more sort of bizarre... Uh, experience or, or anecdote that that jumps to mind that um, would be amusing to our listeners. Well, just just a sort of uh, bizarre. I doesn't mean anything really. The the morning after. I mean, my, my difference with with May all started one weekend in December twenty seventeen. I guess it was um, when she rang me up on a Sunday and said, "Oh, we've we've agreed, David, to." Um, to uh, uh, a line which you may not be happy with, which is that Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, there will be full alignment between the regulations North and South. Now, it didn't sound very much, but it's the, the, it's the fissure, the crack that goes through every single subsequent piece of Brexit policy. Um, anyway, we had a, sharp words on it. And the next morning, I'm, I'm, I'm down in London at my flat, and I'm normally picked up at 7.30 in the morning by my, by my driver to take me to... Downing Street and I come out at 7.25 and there's no car and I look around and I thought hmm I've not been sacked already because <laughs> you know, we had a quite a quite difference of view and I was due to go in and talk to her about it and I went what's bloody hell happened to the car so I look around I can't find it call the office where's the car it's supposed to be there alright okay um, so I then try and call an Uber I know try and call a cab 7.30 on, London, uh, on Monday morning in London not a chance yeah. alright so I then call an Uber and I go through this process of the Uber says yes, then says no. Yeah. You know, he, sort of, he says yes, and then four minutes later it gets a better bid sort of thing, you know. And it happened five or six times. I thought, oh, sod it. Um, I, I'm going to have to get the bus. So I go up to uh, Millbank uh, by Vauxhall Bridge and there's 87 bus stops there. And of course, at that time in the morning, it's packed full of people, you know. Yeah. So I get on standing, sort of shoulder to shoulder people. Everybody looking at each other because I'm obviously I'm well known, 
saying, you know, cabinet ministers travelling by buses, the government run out of money, you know, sort of. And, and you can see all of and, and then my phone goes on the dot of eight o'clock, and I, and I thought, that's number 10. Because when you get a call from number 10, they set the call up, and the, the moment, literally on the second of the hour, they call, you know. That's how I thought, well, I think it must be automated. But it's number 10, so I look, so I just don't answer. Seven times it rings. I thought, I'm not going to have a conversation with Theresa May standing on a bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it doesn't ring for a and I call my I call my own office, right, which is at 9 Downing Street next door to 10 Downing Street. Right? Yeah. And my private secretary, my uh, assistant private secretary is already in, as they should be at that time, and, and uh, uh, I said, um, can you call the next door neighbours and tell them I'm on a bus and I'll be there shortly? And my APS says, next door neighbours? And I said, yes, who lives next door? Oh, he says. <laughs> yes, could you call next door and tell them? I, so, anyway, and so, so uh, and of course, you can see them all sort of trying to earwig on this conversation on the bus. And I, and I, and I, and I get now, and I walk in. And, and it transpires, of course, they thought I'd resigned. You know, I'd not, I'd been, re, I'd been refusing to answer the calls. And oh, I hadn't turned gosh, up on yeah, time yeah. for the eight o'clock meeting we were going to have at, at Downing Street. And so there's this great panic goes up <laughs> and I can't answer because I'm standing in a bloody crowd on a bloody bus. <laughs> the 87 bus going to Whitehall. Well, that is um, very thick of it, isn't it? That is, um, that's, that's pretty so, so It's not the only one like it, but that's, that's, that's the one I can tell. One of the questions <laughs> I ask pretty much every guest, uh, nearly every guest, is um, which politician from another political party they, they really respect. And that's one of the things I discovered about you uh, during, you know, working closely with you on Penny's campaign is that you have a lot of um, very strong friendships and, mm. and good relationships with people from all political parties in this place. And you mentioned even your granddad, you know, mm. he was respected by Conservatives as a communist member, so clearly it runs in the family. Um, so who, who, would your, who would you say, if you had to pick just one, I'm sure there's many, but if you... Yeah, there are too many, really. There are too many. <clears throat> My best mate, who's still around, the ones who <laughs> some of them died off. Um, I'm, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Okay. All right. Because one's not controversial, and one is. Right? Okay. The uncontroversial one is Alan Johnson. Yeah. Alan Johnson and I are neighbouring seats. All right. Both of us are putative non-leaders of our parties, you know what I mean? We've sort of both have been in the running at one point or another. Right? Yeah. And we're also very similar working class backgrounds, London and so on. So he, and he's a great friend, and from time to time we've, you know, we've, we've skirmished when he was, he was Home Secretary and I was Shadow Home Secretary for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, or at least I was criticised now, I think I was... I, resigned as Home Secretary by then, but, but uh, anyway, we skirmished you know, over time. But we, we often used to go to Bruff, and Bruff in my constituency, the BAE had a factory, and a lot of his constituents worked there, a lot of mine did, and we used to go to this thing and talk to the board and the, and the senior management there. And we'd, we'd sort of swap roles, because he's an ex-trade unionist and I'm an ex-director of a FTSE 100 company, you know. 
and he go and behave like the he go, he go and behave in, in a sort of compliant and conciliatory way and be nice to them, and I'd tear them apart. And this was great fun because they couldn't they couldn't quite work this out that the the ex businessman was behaving like a shop steward and the ex shop steward was behaving like <laughs> a diplomat. Um, so we had the, we had this sort of double act, which 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 became sort of locally famous, you know. Um, but we were very great friends too, and we sometimes travelled down the train together. So he was the he's the sort of he's the um, He's, if you like, the conciliatory one. The other mate of mine <coughs> who would raise hackles even today uh, was Alistair Campbell. Um, and A guest of this show. Oh, has he? Oh, right. Very yeah. good. And he, he um, was, of course, the great the person everybody wanted to hate in the Tory party when he was Blair's uh, press man. Um, but I knew him before then. Mm. Um, uh, way before that, when he worked for the Daily Mirror, and actually one day, I mean, one day I saw. I mean, Alistair has a sort of bipolar; he has depression, depressive tendencies. Yeah. yeah? And um, uh, the uh, I'm having a senior moment. Um, anyway, the owner of the Mirror had committed, probably committed suicide, died off a boat. Um, right. That might have been a second. And the um, and so the mirror was floating free, probably going to be taken over by somebody. Uh, Alistair was um, uh, was the was the political uh, editor, I think, at the time. And I'd been in the city doing some deal or other. I was still a backbench MP prior to going into government. Uh, so when Thatcher was still uh, around, and. Um, I saw Alistair standing looking very miserable in the uh, members' lobby. And I'd, I'd just been raising money for a prospective bid that I was going to do personally. And it never happened for reasons, it doesn't matter why. But the, um, and I'd been able to raise in one morning promises of £300 million to buy a company. Right? Sure. And, it, and it just struck me how easy it had been. I did it yeah. with one side of a sheet of paper and described what I wanted to do. And uh, which turns out to be the trick. And about um, what happened? I said, Alistair, I said, could you run the Daily Mirror? And he said, yeah, of course I could. I said, no, no, I don't mean write a 30-page polemic every day. I said, could you edit it in such a way that you'd increase the circulation? Oh. These are the days when newspapers could increase circulation. They weren't in yeah, yeah, decline. Yeah. All, pre, all pre-social media and pre-multiple media. And he sort of looked at me and he realised I was being serious. He said, he said, yeah, I could. Yeah, why? I said, well, why don't I buy it for you? And you run it and I'll be the chairman. And uh, we can rejuvenate the mirror because it, you know, it was about to be the, the, the pension fund of all the bits um, uh, and, and so on. And the sort of scandals. And he sort of looked at me. I said, ball's in your court. You decide, you come back to me and I'll do it. And... Um, uh, and about a month later, I think, he started working with Tony Blair. Uh, so history could have been different. Could have been so different. Could have been different. But, I, you know, he and I were mates long That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, but that's brilliant answers. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you, David, was, you know, the infamous, infamous time at Chequers, which um, ultimately, ultimately resulted in, in your resignation, and it was incredibly high profile and I'd love to hear from you whether it was as dramatic as as it was portrayed in the media but also 
on a personal note, I, I was working for Penny Mordant at the time as, as a special advisor, and I, it, I was only, I'd only been working for her for not very long. It was, you know, it hadn't been, it hadn't been that long. And I kept getting phone calls almost weekly from Tim Shipman and other journalists, like, I hear she's about to resign, is it true, is it true? And on the day of checkers, or around that time when you resigned, I thought she, I was convinced she was going to. So I, I packed all my bags. <laughs> and without the private office seeing it, I packed everything up and, you know, and I said to her, look, you know, I've packed my bags. <laughs> and then, you know, one of the things you mentioned during the summer was that in the case of Penny, in the case of Suella, Braverman, you actually sat them down and said, I think you should not resign and and you gave reasons why and it'd be good great to understand from you why you why yeah. you felt that way but also was it as dramatic it, well it's a little more intricate than you describe actually but the but the it starts it starts way way back six months before checkers um uh teresa had made a concession without talking to me beforehand to the europeans and it was quite clear that it's going to make it a hundred times more difficult to get a decent deal this was the agreement as to how we treat Northern Ireland. Massive mistake in my view. Anyway, I tried very hard for the next six months and I, indeed I won some battles along the way. There was an earlier Chequers meeting which was not a full board meeting, it was a, uh, for not a full cabinet meeting but a, but, but a strategic meeting uh, where I won the arguments about right to diverge and so on. But it was quite plain that Whitehall, Ollie Robbins, number 10, were all pulling in a different direction. And the Monday before checkers, checkers on Friday, the Monday before checkers, I had a conversation with the Prime Minister. It was plain as a pike staff that what she was proposing as the policy that to get the rubber stamp from the cabinet on was just not going to work. Just not going to work. I told her that. I said, I can, as I always do when we have disagreements, let me see if I can redraft it to meet all our concerns. It proved impossible. So on the Thursday, that is the day before checkers, I called in all my ministers, right, uh, including Suella Braverman, and I said to them, I'm going to resign this weekend, not at Chequers, but over the course of the weekend. Um, I'd like you to keep it private for the minute, but you must decide what you want to do. Um, you, uh, Robin Walker, must stay. We must have some continuity here, you know. Um, Steve Baker, I know, wanted to go. He, he, he said he would, he would want to resign alongside me. Um, Suella, I said, she, she'd only been in the department about less than six months anyway. Um, I said, Suella, really, it's your call. It's no harm if you stay, right? Don't, don't, wor don't worry about that. If you choose to resign, you will recover. So it's up to you, but there's absolutely no pressure. I didn't say don't resign. In her case, there's mm. no pressure on you to resign, okay? It's slightly different to what I said to Penny. Um, anyway, we have the, the meeting at Chequers. It is, as you say, quite dramatic. Um, the uh, Prime Minister speaks and makes her case for how she's going to uh, uh, address the withdrawal agreement. Um, David Liddington then speaks, who was sort of effectively Deputy Prime Minister, and he did what he was supposed to do, which was support her. Fine, that's all good. Then comes to me, I make the argument, I make four, point, four points, essentially, which, in which this policy will fail, one way or another. Um, 
then goes to Boris, who is not prepared. He's expecting her to oscillate backwards or forwards, and he's not prepared. So he sort of fumbles the the, the, the ball, really. Uh, and and was I, although he was on my side, didn't make a very good argument. She went around, then went around the table. In total, there were four people on the anti uh, side, the anti withdrawal agreement side. Um, uh, Esther McVeigh was one, made a very passionate argument. Uh, and Penny was the other one, who made, in my view, the most cogent argument of the day. Very clear, crystal clear uh, argument. Uh, as to why this was wrong, and pr made proposals of amendments to pick up on my four points. Um, now, I wasn't going to resign that day, because that would be to resign in their control, right? I was going to do it in my control, uh, because Brexit then, like now, was in two big camps, so what would happen if I'd resigned then is, uh, firstly, number 10's spin would go on it, rather than mine, but also, each newspaper and each TV station would put their own blush on it didn't want that to happen right um so i waited until the sunday sunday i was going to go to watch the formula one grand prix with my daughter um uh which was a big treat for her and i wasn't going to have her overwhelmed by the paparazzi when we got there why are you resigning so i waited till after that but on the way there i called up the three or four people who i thought would get telephone calls that night when i did actually resign uh so the first one i called was boris johnson because he was already in trouble because he'd not resigned over Heathrow. Remember all that mm, lying down from yeah, the bulldozer? Yeah, yeah. I ring him and, he, and I said, Boris, about 10 or 11 o'clock tonight, I'm going to present my resignation to Theresa May. Oh, do you have to, he says. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you resign, I'll have to resign. I like being foreign secretary. <laughs> so that's his response. I said, yeah, well, I'm afraid so, Boris. So, you know, you, you can do it how you like. You don't have to follow in my footsteps. But, you know, obviously people will draw their own judgments on, on all of that. So it's your call. Uh, I then called Penny. And, and I called her because, you know, she had made the most cogent argument. Indeed, throughout her all the time in, car, in cabinet, she had been one of the best allies, if you like and uh, on Brexit and uh, I said to her in terms I said look I'm, I'm going to stand down you shouldn't we need to have people still in cabinet who will fight the Brexit corner alright mm. uh, I said something similar to Esther McVeigh um, uh, and I also called one or two others I won't name them but one or two others to, uh, to give them heads up because you know, getting a telephone call at midnight on Sunday saying oh you're going to resign is not clever yeah. and then that afternoon um, six o'clock, uh, I went to see the chief whip because the prime minister unavailable to talk to him, him and him and Robbie Gibb. Um, they offered me the foreign secretary's job to try and keep me, and I said no. <laughs> they offered me Boris's job. Believe what were we going to do to Boris? I know, I don't, I don't know, but I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was not going to be the architect of his departure that way. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, it would have been, in my view, not proper. Um, they tried everything to try and get me to stay. Um, then I'd already written the letter a week before. Um, and so about 10 o'clock, you know, these things happen. There, there was an attempted negotiation between um, uh, Number 10 and Raoul Ruperel, who was my yes. advisor. Yeah. We didn't change a letter <laughs> in the letter. We didn't change a comma in the letter. Um, uh, then Number 10 brief somebody at about half past ten they sort of get it out first but what it then happens is of course it's too late for the papers really 
uh, and uh, I give a, uh, uh, an interview to John Humphreys on the uh, radio, and I said, Today Programme, yeah. Today Programme, Radio 4 Today Programme, and they, they called me up and said, would you come on? I said, yeah, I'll come on. The conditions are as follows. One, you don't, you don't put the address you're going to pick me up on, on, on computer, because then it'll get leaked and I'll get you know, mobbed by the press. Yeah. Um, two, it's 10 past eight and it's the whole 20 minutes. It's, you, know, you don't give me five minutes and then loads yeah. of commentary. Three, it's Humphreys. Um, I want your best on this. Um, and that's it, really. That's it. You know. uh, and four, you don't trail it. You know. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and that was it. Uh, and then I did Humphreys, I did Peston, I did Koonsberg that day. Then I went home to Yorkshire. <laughs> so yeah, it was very high, it was very high drama, and the purpose, yeah. bluntly, was to change the policy. Yeah. Um, and I tried to do it as gently as possible. If if you read the letter, there's a bit in it which says, you know, I, it may be that you're right and I'm wrong, and I hope you are. Mm. And to, to, I'm trying to give her ways out because you know I still feel a fondness for Theresa May. I think in different circumstances she would have been a very good prime minister, but you know she was essentially a Remainer trying to deliver a Brexit. Mm. agenda and that's that's really hard to do um but but i knew in my heart of hearts that it was actually the end of her yeah. but the, there was no other way to end the policy except by basically sweeping away the people it's funny you know you mentioned how uh in the first uh around well the leadership election where theresa may ended up winning you had originally backed boris, boris yeah. um and he was sort of, you know, he ended up voting for him second time round. But I've heard lots of people say, including very senior civil servants, actually, that um, Boris would have probably been better that time round, and Theresa May after, because you needed, you know, a, yeah. probably you really needed a Brexiteer at, at, at that moment in time. You did. That's what that was. That was my logic at the time. Yeah. My logic at the time was that that you know, we this this was this was immediately after. Remember. After uh, David Cameron had stood down because of the Brexit outcome, so Brexit was front and centre on it, which is why Boris. I mean, Boris has he's got many virtue, very very impressive virtues and many very impressive flaws, and uh, but nevertheless, the balance would have been strongly favoured at that point. And we needed, we see, we needed uh, to be tough. With the Europeans in the early days, there was always going to be a period when they were going to be bitter. But there's no way around it. You know, this is this this project is a centerpiece of European politics. Of course, it is. You know, yeah. since the Second World War, basically, it's to prevent another one. That was the aim. Now, actually, I think the Second and uh, the Further World War stopped by two other things: the German Constitution, which we wrote, uh, and NATO, which we created. It didn't owe much to Europe at all, but you know, the European Union at all. But we uh, we were going to face some bitterness. Now, my view was you had to get through that and use that period of bitterness to have the hard fights over money, over trade, over regulation, and so on. And once you stood up to them, it would then have settled down. We did the opposite, uh, largely Theresa's decision. Well. Pretty much entirely to read the decision. Uh, we gave things away too quickly. We gave away the sequencing. We gave away 
you know, the battle over money, which we did have, was okay, but it would have been better if we'd already been tough on something else first. Mm. Um, and we needed somebody to do that. And Boris had the chutzpah to do that. Yeah. He wouldn't have done it himself. He would have he would have done all the broadcasting. Somebody else would have done the hard grind, um, and that would have been fine. Mm. Uh, and but what Boris was not well equipped for uh, was the. Um, The sort of catastrophes like COVID, where you have the answers are not in anybody's philosophical textbook. You know, there's no grand headline. You know, think of Boris as being great at conjuring up telegraph headlines. That's what he spent most of his life doing. And he was really good at it, right? Um, which means boiling things down to a single simplicity. There was no single simplicity in COVID. People didn't bloody know. The scientists didn't know. The public didn't know. And it required a degree of grasp of detail, uh, command of science, um, ferocious managerial skill to make things happen. None of which are Boris's fortes. You know, his fortes are other things. His forte is being the spokesman, being the vocal leader, being determinedly positive when everybody else is being negative. All of which are fantastically important in a Brexit negotiation can be a bit of a liability in a COVID emergency. And that's how it turned out in the end of the day. You know. And, you know, he, he, he did well on some things. He did well on outsourcing, effectively outsourcing the vaccine approval process. He didn't do it. Somebody else did it. You know. um, uh, Kate Bingham did it, you know. But, and, of course, as the Prime Minister gets the credit. But nevertheless... You know, he outsourced it. He said that was a good yeah. thing to do. But quite a lot of things they got wrong. He talked about getting all the big calls right. Hmm, no, not really. He got some of them right. Um, and the details, we didn't get any of them right. You know, look at track and trace. Bloody disaster, you know. Um, started too late. Look at, look at some of the early decisions on what they, what they now call super spreader events. You didn't need much knowledge to know that a big race meeting with people from all over Europe at it or a, an international football match with one of the countries that's already suffering uh, too much are going to be super spread events they'd already happened in, in Europe yeah. um, so so you're right uh, Theresa would have been better at that she's somebody who read every bloody paper I mean uh, yeah uh, and in, in great detail and I mean often disappeared in the minutiae rather than kept aside of the yeah. thing but nevertheless for that for that yeah and and the great one of the reasons I supported Penny was I was looking for character rather than philosophy you know because our philosophy is a bit different in many ways but the but I wanted somebody who, in this era of crises, because that's what we're in. We're in a, you know, the historians will look back on this, this and the next decade as an era of crisis. Just as the 30s and 40s were eras of crises, mm. as an era of crises. And we need character. We need people who have got the resilience, the intellect, the capacity to see to the bottom of the problem, understand it in detail have the courage to make the difficult and sometimes dramatic and sometimes unpopular decision and carry it through. And that's what I hope we get in this leadership contest. Yeah. So um, very quick five questions. If you had to pick one trait that makes um, 
a good politician, what would you say that is? If you had to just pick one. Empathy with ordinary people. Very good. And what is the best advice you've ever received? The advice was from a major in the SAS. Always get back up. I like that. And then I just realised I forgot to ask you about an object. So what object would you say has extra meaning to you or um, has impacted your thinking? As you say, you're looking at my ice axe behind me. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we'll pick that one. I mean, there are are a few, but let's pick that one. Um, The reason that ice axe is there, it's a stew-by ice axe. Um, is that uh, I was mountain climbing in the Pyrenees and uh, we were walking from one centre to another which we used to do, we used to go and do it every year and so carrying about a 70 pound rucksack, big heavy rucksack and walking along this um, trail through the snow high up in the Pyrenees, high up in the mountains several thousand, I think probably about eight, ten thousand foot up and um, walking on this snow trail, and the snow trail broke beneath me, right? And I fell, I sort of fell almost head first uh, onto my back. And this, this rucksack, um, not as sophisticated as modern ones, slid up my back and sort of was pinning me, <gasps> all right? Um, so, so that I could, I could barely move my arms, right? And I was going down this thing towards precipice. Precipice was, I don't know, a couple of thousand foot, maybe more, you know, a drop. <laughs> and um, and I, so I, I stuck the ice axe in, right, into the into the snow. And there was a whirring noise and lots of snow, but it barely slowed me down, but it did turn me round, right? So now I'm on the snow, but this, this rucksack on, on my head now, and still trying to stop. I'm still not slowing down even, let alone, let alone stopping. And my pal, a guy called, well, his, nickname, his name was David, but his nickname was Des, because that was his initials, D-E-S. Uh, Des shouts out, uh, punch it in, punch it in, right? Now, he'd been on a snow and ice climbing course, which I'd never been, you see, and I'd never used an ice axe properly. It was, a sort of, it was a decoration, frankly, up until <laughs> this point. And so I think, okay, so I pull my hand and bang, the hand goes into the snow about that deep, right? Wow. And we stop, right? Now look behind me, and my feet are about two or three feet from the edge of the precipice. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I sort of dig in my other hand and pull it out and all, all, all my fingernails are bleeding all of them <laughs> you know? oh. uh, so it's, it's it sort of saved my life and so I sort of I keep it as a memento really well that is a cracking story David Davis grandee or not definitely still very much a force to be reckoned with thank you so much my pleasure for coming on thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the episode please do spread the word And do get in touch or share your thoughts via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thank you.